Welcome back to Why Did Peter Sing? This is Databases and Red Light Districts, Part 4. Let's check out a famous city of man. Let's go to Amsterdam in this episode. Amsterdam is the most famous red light district in the world in the Netherlands, where people can tour and observe prostitutes showing their wares in single-stall bedrooms. I've been there and walked the street. It's very odd, as you have naive tourists walking around, kind of like we were wandering at Costco in the meat section, except in Amsterdam you can make eye contact with the meat while it's still alive. Or perhaps more similar, it's like the cattle judging at the county fair, where the judge pokes at the young heifer or steer and says, well, this rump is marbling nicely, and I might give it a reserve champion ribbon. I bet she'll draw a good bid at the auction. That's kind of the sense of what it's like in, Nether in the Netherlands. The experiment that the Netherlands has done is to permit everything with the underlying goal being that it would reduce crime and drug use overall, which it hasn't. This is meant to be merciful, as heroin addicts and sex addicts just need a little outlet, like I've been talking about in the series. And if allowed, they could be productive members of the city and not harm others. That way we have consent, they're not hurting anyone else, of course, they're not doing anything wrong because there's no such thing as sin. So mercy is the goal. And of course, the flip side of mercy is justice or judgment. So surely allowing people to let their wild side out for a run around the yard uh, is more merciful than locking up every casual drug user and dirty John on the streets. The same merciful motive created a concept called wet houses for hopeless alcoholics, which is free apartments um, for chronic homeless, those types of things. This is intended to be the flip approach to, say, the war on drugs, the heavy hammer, which imprisoned a lot of people, but may not have actually stopped drug use much. However, wide open policies haven't seemed to work either, as the famous Plotspitz experiment in Zurich played out in a very public way. That was a famous experiment done in Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, if you've ever seen the TV show The Wire, there are some great episodes about this topic. And they have a place called Hamsterdam, Hamsterdam, uh, which is a play on Amsterdam, and it's allowed to exist in Baltimore in an attempt to fix a city overridden by crime and drugs. The show portrays the experiment as a success, but the politics in the city disband Hamsterdam because it makes them look like they're promoting the destruction of the city and certain individuals rather than being merciful. So once it seems to be working, but the politicians get involved and say, well, we can't just have this going on over in this corner of this thing called Hamsterdam, so they shut it down. So oddly enough, the roping off of an area to be allowed to have the vice area, the red light district, um, it does allow the majority of people to live outside of the influence of the chaos that drugs and red light districts bring. And when it's done with the understanding uh, that suppressing all vice will lead to an explosion. It allows this corner, this edge, the fringe of society to live in sin while families and careerists and everyone else can pursue their own dreams outside of that mayhem that comes along with that. In the TV show, a man, a policeman named Bunny Colvin, wants to save Baltimore by creating a vice district. And I would, The, the Wire is a very popular show. Um, People love it for sort of the sociological and, and other uh, political aspects of it. But So 
what happens is uh, Bunny Colvin, he wondered if there was a way for drugs to be made safe for low-level users to take them without facing punishment. And comparing the city's drug problems to the illegal public consumption of alcohol, which was circumvented when people began keeping their beer in a paper bag. After the attempted murder of an officer named Dozerman, Bunny Colvin finally decided that he would independently set up three free zones in his district where addicts and dealers were allowed to conduct their business under supervision but without interference. And that would move the drug trade into a controlled, uninhabited area to protect the rest of his district. So this sounds like a very interesting idea and goes with some of the other things we've talked about in the series. What happens in the end is that the vice district is removed and the crime and drugs moves back into the neighborhoods where parents, children, and and the elderly live. To quote the band, The Offspring, you got to keep them separated. So mixing the innocent with the fallen must be done with caution. Any caring parent raising a child will try to steer his or her children toward good choices, just like any bird does not build a nest where predators can climb and eat them. Taken to a wider level, a city or nation that embraces the disorder of the prodigal son and places it at the center of the city, the center of society, will suffer. Now, Las Vegas and increasingly Nashville act as the main outlets for the American party where we have a never-ending Saturnalia or Fat Tuesday happening. Uh, Vegas even advertises this in its moniker of Sin City uh, with the, the motto, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's been seen by everyone who's ever seen a, an ad for Vegas tourism. The message is, come here to do what's wrong, uh, to get wild, to do what you can't do in your ordinary life in your ordinary, boring, day-to-day life. So this is the outlet for um, us Groundhog Day kind of people. Um, So where you get up and and go to work and raise kids and do laundry and do it all over again the next morning, Vegas is enticing us with this temptation to come and put all that aside and and just let it rip. Uh, So the idea of setting apart a time or place for letting loose and celebrating pleasure has been with humans for a very long time. But the overall governing idea on how a city or group should be formed has been battled about just as long. Uh, Plato's Republic is about 2,400 years old. Um, The Code of Hammurabi is close to 4,000 years old. The Laws of Israel in the first five books of the Bible was written about 3,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean these discussions and ideas were not taking place long before they made it onto paper. So even... The Code of Hammurabi was the first time some of this was written down. Um, it was obviously probably much earlier than that, that these ideas were around of how do we organize our world, knowing these outlets for wildness need to happen. So we're lucky to have the preservation of these arguments in, even on paper from that long ago, because for some 20,000 to 30,000 years, people have been discussing and observing how should we organize our world. And along with those descriptions of law and governing philosophies, we have ample evidence of festival and party weekends that acted as part of the fabric of a culture. And long before Mardi Gras and Oktoberfest, there was Saturnalia, Cronia, Purim, Chinese New Year, the Festival of Drunkenness in Egypt, and a thousand other small festivals around harvest and marriages and and victory, uh, remembrances, things like that, memorials. We still have these today, 
And we even have dedicated places where people can go to have their own festival whenever they choose. Las Vegas is a place set apart. Set apart is a key thing I talk about a fair, a fair amount, I feel like. But it's set apart for rejection and rebellion from the typical rules of our society. And most certainly against the idea of a, a watchful living God. If anything, Vegas is a modern shrine to the Greek or Roman god of wine, Dionysus, or, or Bacchus for the Romans. Sometimes I use those interchangeably, forgetting which is which. But Vegas also worships the gods and goddesses of sex, which would be Eros and Aphrodite, a.k.a. Cupid and Venus. Since people go there specifically for nude shows and strippers and red light action. Much like an altar, the stage at a strip joint represents a ritual gathering place where men offer money, they eat and drink in front of this show, in front of this um, stripping. Like I said, it's like the county fair kind of thing. Even the dance that strippers do acts like a ritual since they all do the same things in luring dollars out of men's pockets. So the same can be said for the sports book areas in the casinos where people gather in the dark around TV screens and make offerings of money, they, their sacrifices, um, they eat meat and wings and burgers in the hopes of the sports god granting a wish. So again, food and drink is present and the ritual of watching and praying to the screens happens at every table. <laughs> there's, a, there's a ritual going on that uh, has all the elements of worship. Vegas is set aside for a kind of ritual pilgrimage, too, for those in, in this rebellion who are, um, are in that sort of worship of not uh, anything other than God, I guess you could say. The idea of drinking and gambling and partaking of bodily pleasures makes Vegas clearly a place where holy and sacred things are not welcome or, or not the traditional holy and sacred things. In fact, there are substitutions which take their place. The reality is that while in Vegas, the holy and sacred things are sports, sex, food, and drink. So for sports, you could say competition. It's like gladiators in the arena. We just have bloodless ones, um, unless it's hockey, I guess. But once you see the ritual and sacrificial aspects of what happens in Vegas, you see a religion in process. There's almost no other way to see it. It's difficult to see it as anything but a pilgrimage. Uh, when you hear someone say, I go to Vegas every year, they have identified to you their offering of sacrifice. And they go and offer money, uh, their brain cells, their liver tissue, uh, their veneration of the warm sins of gluttony, lust, and greed. They have a place of pilgrimage, whether it's the Luxor, the Excalibur, Treasure Island. They have a liturgy ritual, which is repentance by hangover, a rebirth in the spa, poolside libations, uh, slot machine offertory, nude dancing adoration, and communion even by all-you-can-eat buffet with a chocolate fountain chaser. So it's all there. They have, they have all of the elements, the sacrifice, the veneration, the pilgrimage, the liturgy, um, the adoration, and communion. So it's, it's, we just don't call it a religion. And no overt human sacrifice is raised up to unmask what it really is, except Nevada is actually one of the leading states for human sacrifice to Moloch per capita um, in terms of abortion. So there are places set apart for where the party never ends, like Las Vegas or Key West or Bourbon Street. 
Then there are established weekends for celebration in every town and city, known as festivals and block parties. Both of these set-aside places and events allow people to feast, to cut loose, and to reset their moral compass. It's like they're recalibrating it. Every town and city and block party is like a place where you can go to um, reset. You Maybe your compass has been sitting too close to the magnet and you have to um, bon- shake it up a little bit. You go to the block party and get wild and then you kind of reset. So the letting down of the guard around morality for a day or a weekend is intended to allow that recalibration and a grounding of the party goers greater purpose. So by letting the masses off the leash, they get to run wild for a day before returning to productive and ordered living, um, living out their actual purpose and use in the world. The festival weekend mimics the fall and the redemption, which is why it makes sense for every culture and city and town to hold these events. An allowance for rebellion is made even in the most strict cultures in order for people to see why the norm of order is so valuable. Even Amsterdam and Hamsterdam and Vegas are all doing this. They're allowing some rope to the people to let themselves cut loose and then return to a sort of more normal, regular state where you go to work and do the dishes and laundry. So if the celebration, if all of these block parties and festivals, if, they, if it doesn't center on alcohol, then it's a feast of some kind. So a touch of gluttony is added to the calendars in the form of feast days, even in Christian, Jewish, and Islamic traditions. So this cycle is something well known to anyone um, who's even of the traditional religions. In fact, you could even say that's where these things came from, but they go back even further than that. So one of the greatest paintings of this block party rowdiness was from Peter Bruegel the Elder, and it's known as the Peasant Dance from 1568. And while the fashion of the peasants may differ greatly from today's attire, the characters and actions within the painting can be witnessed wherever heavy-duty drinking takes place. It's the same today as it was in 1568. We just wear different clothes. Uh, There's unrestrained dancing in the picture, There's haggard, drunken faces in the foreground. There is a couple in the background sneaking into a barn for solitude and a presumable tryst. He's pulling her by the hand. Uh, There are are tankards of liquor everywhere. You can see lust, gluttony, and wrath present, just like any nightclub today, any nightclub you go into. The unrefined people of the peasant world engage in everything that happens annually today at Coachella, even among our elite, privileged, and, quote, refined people. Most interesting in the painting are two subtle elements that are shoved aside in favor of the tavern. On the right side of the painting is a blurry little picture hanging on a crooked crooked tree of the Virgin Mary. And she is fully ignored by the peasants. Um, Also, in the background at the center of the painting is the church steeple, the centerpiece of the town, which is clearly ignored on that day of the of the peasant dance. The celebration is thought to be the Feast of St. George. So this feast day is like other days surrounding holy days in our time, like Fat Tuesday as a feast before the Lenten season of fasting begins, or Halloween before All Saints Day. So there's a season for fasting and for feasting. There's a season for everything, if you remember your Ecclesiastes readings. The peasant dance shows a lack of morality, yes, but it also shows the allowance of a sanctioned escape 
from the ordinary churn of days where the townspeople, whose rituals of work and worship are dispensed for a day. The idea of having a liturgical calendar is designed with this in mind. And that's uh, of the Catholic tradition or Orthodox tradition. There's a liturgical calendar because if all days were fasting, then fasting would lose its meaning as an offering and be mere drudgery. Worse yet, if all days were feast days, then civilization would collapse. Uh, the calendar of the church did not balance feasts and fasts by accident or by dumb luck. It is designed to move with the seasons of life, uh, planting and harvest, um, all of those things. Of course, those were the ancient things, and that's where some of the liturgical calendar things still fall, but they're celebrations of uh, Jesus, events in the life of Jesus. So if every day was a feast day, um, you may have seen as a child, there was an, a Huey, Dewey, and Louie Christmas special called Stuck on Christmas. And that's where the duckling boys thought it would be just great to have Christmas every day. And getting their wish, they soon discovered that after about five days of feasting and toys, they become miserable. And Christmas and endless feasting grows into a burden, just like any addiction. The error happens when the feasting is made the center of life. This goes to the core issue of our mental illness outbreak today. The fact that every day can be a feast now is why so many addictions seize lives. And if you pair this with declining belief in the one true God and you have a problem, you have a problem then that science cannot solve alone. It needs the spiritual element to it. It needs to recognize the seasons of life because there is no longer a concept of sacred time and space. And what happens is all days are flattened into Groundhog Day. So the idea of sacred places and things and days is no longer recognized in culture, which leads to a kind of malaise in all the days. So we still have the places you can go, the town festivals, the Vegas, uh, you can go to Amsterdam. We just don't have the sacred days, sacred days and places and times. So we can overeat and get drunk and find a sex partner any day we like. Or we can do some new age prayer routine, but only in a yoga studio or our living room because we have no sacred place to go to. After all, quote, everything is sacred, which is code for nothing is sacred. And for replacements, what do we have? We have things like Super Bowl Sunday and 4th of July parties. Those have overtaken the prominent places of Easter Sunday and All Saints Day. So we have the feast, but there's no fast. I think, I think this over often, as it's clear that most Christians put far more preparation into Super Bowl Sunday than Easter, which is the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus. So that alone, that preparation for Super Bowl, that alone uh, tells you how secularism and the new pagan holy days have come to dominate America. There should be a widespread outcry among Catholics to boycott Super Bowl Sunday, but it's not there. Because it is literally the new holy day where we not only gather in a ritual, but also eat in front of the liturgy, the ritual presented by the TV, where we get ready for the national anthem. Um, there's the preparation of food, national anthem, um, everybody watches kickoff, 
They watch the first few series of advertisements very quietly. Uh, everyone's listening, hoping to hear something funny, something interesting. And then, then, there's, then it kind of devolves into the feast until the halftime show. And then there's a big um, focus once again. And then it just turns into more debauchery of overeating and drinking. So there's so much pagan cult ritual in Super Bowl Sunday. It's hard for me to fathom how that has slipped past every self-proclaimed Christian as, quote, just a social gathering. Super Bowl Sunday is one of the only set-apart days that Americans share, and it is anything but holy or sacred. And if you watched the 2020 halftime show with Jennifer Lopez, you will know that you were watching something demonic or perhaps the greatest satirical wake-up call of all time to every Christian in America. So in the show... Uh, Jennifer Lopez did an imitation of the three crosses at Calvary, but using stripper poles, where she was lifted up on a center pole and appeared crucified in the center, where she put her arms out and, and folded her legs over and made a unmistakable reference to a, uh, a cross, a crucifix with her on it. And the two poles on the side of her mimicked what you see at Calvary, the other poles, um, of course, the cross beam wasn't there, but it was unmistakably uh, an inversion of what uh, what was happened in, in the Bible, in the Gospels. So I don't know what other word could be used for it than demonic, as the entire imagery was the inversion and mockery of Jesus on, on the cross. So if you believe that Jesus is God, then what do you make of that image, which took a lot of planning and practice to perfect for a live show? And we all know there are no accidents in Hollywood. The images you see in shows and movies are not accidental. And there's a picture on this post of what it, what it looked like. Um, you know, few Americans even batted an eye at that. But I knew then that something was rotten in America um, sometimes an image or a moment jars you awake. You suddenly realize that, that what you were living in is not at all what you thought. It's like when you get sucked into admiration for a group or a company, only to find out after joining that the exterior is just a cheap veneer and the inside is really a rotten culture. And that's America today. So when JLo was lifted up like Christ, I knew that a threshold had been crossed but that was long ago. I was just seeing it at, in 2020. So we would all be wise to really back away from sports, entertainment, and wealth worship in general. But I have a feeling we won't since those are the values of the elite and that trickles down to everyone else. Um, and you know, now that we know how much cheating takes place in professional sports um, with rampant steroid use and sign stealing and deflating footballs, we... We know that professional wrestling is every bit as honorable as professional sports. Um, we also know that the media companies are hell-bent on mocking all things Christian. And as far back as 2005, NBC's uh, brief series Committed did a full episode mocking the Eucharist, where in the end, the consecrated host is flushed down a toilet. So... Imagine if that was something with um, drawing a picture of Muhammad or something. I mean, it's just it's just open season on on Catholics, really, and in, in all of the media, which which is of course the odd paradox that it means we know we're on the right path if the world is mocking us. So we're used to it, I guess. Um, 
But what we worship in America is wealth and winning and comfort. Um, we've just gone ahead now and merged the stripper poles and the soft porn right into our halftime shows. And why not? Why not? Let's just stop pretending we aren't living in a Roman orgy. I'd personally like to thank JLo for lifting herself up to be the new Christ image because I'd like to think that she was doing it, I'm hoping, in satire. I think she, I'm hoping she was using stinging ridicule and wit and subtly tell, yelling at us all to turn off the TV and get right with God. That's the best charitable answer I can give for her because if it was anything other than that, we need to pray for Jennifer, uh, who, who once assured us in her song, Jenny from the Block, while, while she was nearly nude in the video, that she always puts God first and can't forget to stay real. So J-Lo puts God first. That's what, um, in fact, um, I, I think J-Lo is probably a very common specimen of modern Christianity, um, which is a, a quick nod to God while you proceed to ignore every single thing he ever said, and you do whatever you want. Now, that the crucifixion of Jesus in the halftime show was mimicked using imagery from a strip joint, with an extremely wealthy woman being lifted up, alive and well, claiming the image of Christ on the cross. So moreover, if you look at that image again, notice that everyone is falling at her feet in worship of her. Yet this passed by the millions of viewers and we all went back to eating wings and talking football and gossiping and getting drunk. Um, Sinead O'Connor once ripped up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and that brought an outrage. But this image by Jennifer Lopez was a much more subtle dig at all things Christian and there was hardly a bark because everyone who sets aside time for the Super Bowl is, let me just say it here first, a modern pagan. There's no other explanation for it, and J-Lo just helped point it out. A good conspiracy could be made that J-Lo was actually calling us to be awakened to our faith, our, or the real, a real um, authentic faith, because she was pointing out how far we have fallen. And somehow I doubt it, but if she is ever reborn in the faith, this image will require some explanation, and I think she'll have to say it was satire, and I hope it was. So the problem with our new holy days is that there's nothing sacred about football. And Super Bowl Sunday has all the hallmarks of a Roman feast day for Dionysus or Zeus, not for Jesus. So what happens, what happens when the belief in the transcendent most high God fades is not just that we don't feel guilty. Uh, it's that nothing is elevated into sacredness. So we remain on the flat earth. We never reach up to God. We just feast and we never fast. We never, there's no demands from, the, from our, what we believe in. And rather than being lifted up into sacredness, the reverse happens and everything falls into the profane and the ordinary. So that's why uh, I, am, I believe that a lot of the mental illness is that everything is flat. We have all feasts and no fasts and no beliefs in anything transcendent. There's no enchantment of anything in the world. And that is a depressing idea. Um, but it's, it's, oh, we'll keep going here before I uh, derive into something else. So what this leads to, what this leads to, this flatness, is a search for the sacred. Because if it's not built into the calendar or into our week or into blessed objects, then the heart must go seek it. 
And with no restrictions or guidance, the search can go on at any time, anywhere. And thus what is best reserved for special days of feasting becomes a daily stuck on Christmas kind of life that depresses the hell out of people. Christmas every day is very depressing. Christmas once a year is extremely exciting. So this falling and rising action of our life stories is built into the liturgical calendar, and it's even built into the seasons of the plants and animals around us. Fasting, feasting, and ordinary time. Suffering, thriving, and holding steady. These are the ups and downs and in-betweens that make a life whole. When the prodigal son's errant lifestyle becomes the norm instead of the exception, there's going to be a problem. And the prodigal son finds that out. Escape from real life is not meant to be permanent. If you read the parable of the prodigal son, um, you'll know that his choices are poor. And the story resonates with people exactly because we can understand the character arc. The prodigal wild child son begins the story whole, but he's seeking something. And so he goes to live in this escapist world and his version of being stuck on Christmas every day turns to misery and he falls and now he's stuck. He threw away the sacred for the profane. He wanted to feast every day and then he is brought to his senses and restored. He surrenders to his father and his father rushes out to greet him with love. The end. Roll credits. Well, not quite the end, but for him it is. Um, a happy ending. It's the symbol of God always wanting us to come back, waiting for us, yearning for us to come back to meet him because it, it requires our choice to love him, not coercion, which is one thing that's so confused. So many people are confused about uh, whenever I hear a lot of fallen away Catholics at recovery meetings, there's this common refrain um, and a complete misunderstanding of what um, it means to be Catholic. There's just so many undercatechized people who never understood it people who were taught bad things by their own parents that have nothing to do with catholicism it's amazing how how bad the teaching has been it's stunning so but the story of falling and rising again is not just for us humans i mean god himself goes through this which is what makes the story of jesus so compelling and strange but why i mean I think this is always the question. Why would God have to come to us in order to die and be raised again? I didn't understand this for a long time. And it's still difficult sometimes. It slips away. Um, and I know why cynics make fun of it. Be but I think it's, it's because it's not easy to understand until you've lived a while. Um, of course, it's much easier to belittle the story with a meme um, I once thought it, this was clever. There was a meme about Christianity being the belief in a cosmic Jewish zombie that can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master so he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a, a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. That was the meme uh, mocking Christianity. <laughs> um, there's so many things in that that are misunderstood, but it is an effective little paragraph at destroying people's faith, um, especially if that person has spent zero time trying to learn the faith and spends no time in prayer. I mean, it is very easy to destroy someone's faith. Um, it's very difficult to 
build it in them and it's way more powerful when you have faith than when you don't um, but for most people a, a slight breeze can knock their faith down because they don't understand and they don't practice it so first of all about that i mean for goodness sakes whoever wrote the thing about zombies um the cosmic jewish zombie first of all zombies eat people people do not eat zombies so if this insult can't even get the basics of zombiedom right it's pretty sad and for the record Catholics do not symbolically eat his flesh. We actually eat Jesus. And his glorified and risen body exists in the real presence of the Eucharist under the appearance of bread and wine. So yes, his body, blood, soul, and divinity is in the Eucharist. So um, atheists on the internet, please fix up your insults before posting them and at least get the mystery correct. At least do that, you know. We'll take the insults, but let's stick to the doctrine. Um, the Eucharist is everything, and I feel sad for those who don't understand what that means, what the word theosis means. Um, but that's a long way to go if you can't get to God, I'll tell you that. So destroying faith is easy. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Most of us uh, today had little or no education on faith or religion of any kind, or if we did have some, it was sketchy and full of holes and kind of haphazard. If anything... It was like some mashed potatoes of Catholicism, 50 shades of Protestantism, and a glued and taped together Hollywood portrayal of, of bad Christians. Um, Christians gone wild, like, like the uh, spring break recordings of uh, teenage girls pulling up their shirts. That's like, we got a terrible, terrible education on what it means <laughs> to be a Christian. I myself was so undercatechized that I couldn't have defended my faith against the light breeze. And that's exactly why my faith blew away like a leaf in the first rustle of wind at an outdoor keg party. And when you practice something you don't understand, it's, it's just like doing busy work for no reason. I recall in the army when a drill sergeant would make soldiers move a pile of rocks from one location to another for no reason other than to keep us busy and to assert his power over us. Uh, similarly, I recall doing hundreds, if not thousands, of quadratic equation problems in math in maybe ninth and 10th, I don't know, 8th, whatever grades, that I didn't care about or understand. Um, this is exactly what practicing a religion without understanding it feels like. Doing the rosary without understanding why is much like moving a pile of rocks from point A to point B and back again, or like doing easy quadratic equations repeatedly over and over there, it, it feels pointless. Without knowing how or why it's done, you cannot grasp its purpose, its usage, its application for your life. A kid who was told to read a book in Arabic when he could barely speak English would get about as much out of doing the rosary if he has no understanding of prayer and meditation or the mysteries that you're meditating on. On the other side, there is understanding without practicing. So this is like, this is the opposite, which is like telling everyone, you are a marathon runner and you know all the details of stretching and training, but when race day arrives, your gut is hanging over your shorts and you have zero stamina, zero lung strength for the race. So to understand Christianity, you can't have rules and no understanding, nor can you have understanding with no rules. You must practice the faith to be fit for it and you must learn the faith to make sense of it. 
Without faith, prayer, and understanding, of course, it seems like nonsense. Without the interior change, it means nothing. And without the rules, it changes nothing. This is the body and soul needing both parts of faith and reason. It also needs uh, your mind and your arms and hands. Uh, this is where the leap of faith joins the mouth with the action of the hands. So it's all these things going together. It's not just saying the right thing. It's not just doing the right thing. Um, it's, it's all of that. It's about wanting to do the right thing. It's not just about rules and it's not about living without rules. The whole thing, the whole thing is about humility before the one God. And when the change of heart happens, you don't care about the vices anymore, other than you want to get rid of them and stop doing them because you love God. Because everything begins to fall into place and make sense once you have this turn, this change of heart happen. Again, repent always means to turn. So people think it means you have to feel guilty and lay on your face in front of a statue or something. It doesn't. It means you turn toward God. You turn away from the things that are not really fulfilling you toward the one thing that can. Even after the change, even after, if you do experience this change, you still have battles with vice and wrongdoing, but you are eager to remove them from your life. Everyone who talks about, I just had the Catholic guilt, blah, blah, blah. Catholic guilt is not anywhere in the catechism. If anything, we're supposed to be hopeful and joyful, um, hopeful sinners. That's the word you want. Hopeful sinners. Now, if you are just in strict legalism where you have to follow all the rules or you just want unbridled lawlessness where there you can do whatever you want, well, once you have this change, none of those, neither of those make any sense because neither can satisfy you. They can actually unite into something um, which is love of God first and foremost. But you have to understand forgiveness first. To realize what this is all about and you have to know that you are loved and to understand it you have to really kneel and and say it say it out loud that's why i always prompt people to say ask for the holy spirit come holy spirit be open um, ask for willingness to be willing you have to practice it to keep it and to practice it you have to be open to it every day the change starts with the choice of like I said, being willing to be willing to take that first step of asking the Holy Spirit to come and fill your heart with a little flicker of light. And without opening up to that notion, you cannot expect the change to happen. Say yes to being open, and you never know where it will lead. The sandbox and the red light districts allow us to grow and to get lost. So what you thought you wanted will probably turn out to be vapid and empty promises, like a cheap knockoff of the real thing. And it takes you a while to realize that. Often, you don't realize it until you get what you wanted. And then you're now you're searching for something else because that didn't quite fill the hole. So when you stop chasing the cheap things, the base things, you'll know that you are crawling on your belly. But there is a way to think of this that can help make sense of time lost in the alleyways. A caterpillar inches furiously on the ground seeking forage and shelter. It's seeking something that it cannot possibly realize. And then one day, when the caterpillar is ready, it begins to transform. And after so much crawling and struggling, it undergoes a radical, difficult transformation, one that must be painful, 
but that suffering is transforming the caterpillar into a butterfly. And when the cocoon splits open, the new life begins. And what was once a caterpillar chasing things on the ground is now a miraculous and beautiful be being that flies in the air. All of those desires that occupied so much of your time, all of the days of being lost, those are the formation of your story guided by God and growing your soul toward meeting Jesus. And if you let the suffering transform you, you will never be inching on the ground again. You will be aloft with him. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why Did Peter Sink? We'll be back with another one for you in the weeks ahead.